the last time I preached here was about 1995. And, uh, and you know, they never invited me back. And it was obviously something I said wrong, uh, but th these things happen. Um, well, what I'm going to do this morning is um, uh, one lovely thing just to start with. Not really the sermon, but I, it's to thank uh, a person in the ministry here of St. Andrews who's got a remarkable ministry. Um, she, do she doesn't realize it, but uh, she has. Um, and I've got some slides uh, to show. Oh, there she is, Sarah. Uh, yeah, sorry, go back to Sarah. And uh, you'll know that Sarah was selling knitting um, for the people in Peshawar, uh, where we've been helping out. I thought I'd give you a little bit of background, very quickly, of uh, what we've been doing and what Sarah's money went to, and uh, also to show you pictures of the Christmas party that we held um, for the, uh, the, the people there. Um, it was about the 19th, 20th of, uh, of December. And I'm glad to say we've also got Kamar here, who's at the back. Kamar is my man. Kamar is my man in Pakistan, and uh, I'll explain a little bit about that as well. He's here with his lovely wife Annie and uh, his lovely son um, Sam, Sammy. So this is um, Peshawar. It's uh, you've heard of it, obviously. It's uh, quite close to Islamabad, where that terrible snow tragedy was yesterday. Um, it's right on the uh, the supply route to Kabul. Um, so all the NATO lorries go backwards and forwards across there. It's, uh, it's run by and large um, un underground by, by the Taliban. And um, it's a very dangerous place to be, and particularly a dangerous place to be a Christian. And there's a huge amount of persecution of the church. So carry on. Um, there was a terrible bomb blast there in uh, 2014 um, in the Church of All Saints, Peshawar, where 120 people were killed by two suicide bombers. And, and this was the beginning of my involvement. I, I knew nothing about Pakistan, but somehow God moved something inside of me and um, said, uh, you, you can help. You know, you know a man in Pakistan. His name is Kamar. And here he's at the back here. I'd, I'd met him about two months before. He's the only man I knew. So I rang Kamai. I said, will you go to Peshawar and, and find out what's going on? I said, I don't want to tread on people's toes. Obviously, people will be helping. But, you know, 120 people, the worst tragedy uh, in, in Pakistan, in the church in Pakistan ever. Um, I want to know what's happening and whether we can help. And um, I've got to say that uh, Kamar, on the next slide. Kamar went into Peshawar, and it was a very dangerous place to go. We told him off for wearing jeans, <laughs> because he, he does look a bit of a target, really, for, for the Taliban. Um, but we, we got all the churches of Bath together, and we took in um, some first aid, things like mattresses. You know, when your arm has been blown off, when you've lost a leg, you know, when you've got ball bearings in your body, it is very difficult to sleep. And uh, they needed these uh, um, proper, very firm mattresses to try and take some of the pain away. So we, we sent things like that out. There's Kamar with uh, our other main man in Pakistan going through and bringing those goods and the next. Um, he sat and he gave out presents uh, to the orphans. Many of the orphans had seen their mums and dads blown up in front of them. Many mums and dads had seen their children blown up in front of them. It was, it was horrific, horrific 
time. I was on the phone to them. Kamar was there with his mobile phone. I was on the phone to them, and I've got to say uh, that it, it, it broke me, broke me in pieces. It's, it was a, the most terrible thing I've ever done uh, in ministry, and Sandra will tell you uh, that, that sometimes I just couldn't, couldn't carry on, and, and I wasn't even there uh, with the pain of what was happening and the next. Uh, we realized that they needed more than mattresses and cholesterol bags and first aid, but they needed post-trauma counseling. And we managed, Kamar managed to fix that up with, uh, with the nationals out in Pakistan. And we brought them and the next, the next slide. And the children particularly were able to look at what had happened to them. Many of the children couldn't go couldn't go to school for three or four years. Some of the children didn't speak for four years. Uh, they were so traumatized uh, by what had happened. Um, now this is all <laughs> to give you background. And uh, I've got to say, on the next slide, um, dear Sarah was picked up on this when we spoke about it some time ago and God moved in her heart. And this is what I love that somebody Somebody amongst us uh, was moved to do the knitting and to raise money. And she raised £120. We put some more money with it as well. And um, we held a Christmas party with the survivors. Um, they're still there. I've met them. I've been over there myself now and met them. Um, but we held a Christmas party and they wanted to send their thanks to St Andrews and to Sarah particularly for initiating this, uh, this whole event. Kamar who now lives in Twerton, or you would do, wouldn't you? <laughs> who now lives in Twerton is a very good friend of mine. He's not, not living in Pakistan anymore. W was able to arrange, arrange it all because he knows the language, he knows the area, he knows the people. So we held this Christmas party. We were able to give out um, school presents to the children, the orphans, who, you know, five, six years on, they're still, you know, and, and a thing like that, it still traumatised them. So... It was a beautiful act of mercy and grace just to give them presence, to say we love you, and to give them hope. And uh, there's some more. And there's Sarah. <laughs> so um, I, I, I just wanted to say thank you this morning for your ministry. Uh, and um, and Kamar, I just wonder whether you could say w w what the team said when they heard that we were going to do this. Well, thank you very much. Uh, um, I mean, <clears throat> in Pakistan, when you are persecuted, like I was um, grown up in a Muslim culture and society in a school. Um, most of the time in my childhood, I heard uh, uh, just one statement that Christians are infidels and they will go to hell. This is a common phrase and um, that still bangs in my mind sometime, even if I have moved here. But I think <clears throat> this act of mercy and kindness and remembrance of these bomb victims has uh, opened a new door of friendship uh, between St. Andrews and people of Bath and the people who are the most persecuted and neglected. So this morning I spoke to them and they have sent them, uh, send their thanks to all of you and uh, they have requested if you keep praying for them because things are getting worse uh, since the Taliban has uh, started ruling Afghanistan and there are a lot of threats and a lot of persecution 
So uh, they have sent their thanks, and I'm, I'm sure you will continue to pray for them as uh, in the future. Thank you. Thank you. Cool. I just want to say a prayer for Kamai. He's a man who's risked his life uh, on behalf of the gospel and um, given himself uh, in many ways to the persecuted Christians of Pakistan. Thank you too, Sarah. Father, thank you for this lovely little project that is such a project that brings hope and life and energy to those who've been so devastated by the horror of the evil that they've had. So, Lord, bless Kamar in his continuing work amongst the persecuted Christians and bless Sarah in her work in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, Sarah, I don't know whether... It doesn't stop there. There'll be more fundraising to be Great. So if you haven't got a woolly hat yet, there's your lady. Okay, I, I, I want to go on to, to the word now because I was, um, okay, the next slide. I was given this title, it came through on Friday, <laughs> Rebuilding Hope and Isaiah 40 to 66. I looked up Isaiah 40 66. See, it doesn't exist, uh, but it means chapter 40 to chapter 66. So I, I read the whole 26 chapters and, uh, and came, up, came up with just four thoughts really on rebuilding hope. We've seen an example there of rebuilding hope in people's lives. But uh, let's go on to the next slide. Desmond Tutu, who died um, tragically a couple of weeks ago, I, I met him twice, not name dropping, but I met him twice in South Africa because we were involved in the struggle against racism out there during the days of apartheid. And uh, Desmond Tutu said this, hope is being able to see that there's light despite all of the darkness. And one of the, f the first time I met Desmond Tutu was on the steps of Cape Town Cathedral. We were there um, at a protest to free the detainees who'd been detained under apartheid rules. And Desmond Tutu was at the front and he led the singing and the dancing and the preaching. And he said to us, um, I've got something terrible to tell you. He said, while we've been worshiping, the church has been surrounded by the security forces. He said, and outside you'll find armoured cars, um, people with uh, thugs, really, with, uh, with great big pieces of wood. You'll find guns. He said, and you'll want to fight them. Don't. He said, don't do it. He said, because we've got children here. He said, you will walk out, you will look at the ground, you will not face them in the eye, and you will walk through the people. And I was at the back of the church, so Desmond Tutu was the first out. And uh, so I went out and said, hello, I'm, I'm Alan, I'm a visiting clergyman from England. And his face lit up. And we were surrounded by all these armoured cars and thugs and police and all sorts of things. And he said, look, he said, enjoy my country. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, I was so moved by this man and the second time too when we met him um, but hope is being able to see that there is light despite all of the darkness and these chapters that we're going to be looking at the next slide are the chapters where God is thinking okay I've punished in a sense my people for, for what they've done wrong 
But in Isaiah chapter 40 to 66, it is the rebuilding of the nation. What do I do when I take these people from Babylon and back? How do I rebuild these people? How do I rebuild hope into them after they've been oppressed for so long? Just like the South Africans under, under apartheid. Just like the Christians in Pakistan. You know, how do you rebuild that hope? And uh, I came up with four lessons very quickly as I looked at these. This was the first one. Is not this the kind of fasting I have chosen? To loose the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke, to set the oppressed free and to break every yoke? Is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter when you see the naked to clothe them and not to turn away from your own flesh and blood? And... You know, as Jesus taught in the parable of the sheep and the goats, you know, where were you when I was in prison? Where, where were you when I needed a shirt? Where were you when I needed food? Um, and it's these practical movements of our faith that show what has happened inside of us. Yes, we worship God, we praise God, we, we have this spiritual movement of his Holy Spirit within us, but it comes out, it shows itself in the actions uh, that we show. Just give you one example. One of the things about living in a vicarage, if you have, um, could you go back? Oh no, you're there. It's all right. Next. <laughs> one of the things that, about living in a vicarage is that you have this sign up on your on your wall outside that says vicarage, usually. <laughs> and uh, it's good and bad because <laughs> because every vagrant. I don't know whether I can still use that word, but every vagrant in the country knows that, that that's a free pass to a sandwich and a cup of tea <laughs> and a chat and a bit of warmth. And so you get a constant flow of, of people who live on the street. Sandra and I used to see it as a privilege. And, and we, used to, we used to treat them like kings and queens. We used to give them everything we could. There was one particular man, I um, don't know whether this is right now, but we used to call him Dave the Tramp. <laughs> Everybody did. And uh, he went from vicarage to vicarage to vicarage, uh, getting a sandwich. And, and one day, I, I, I read, I think it was in the Chronicle, that, that this, this uh, vagrant, a man who lived on the street, had been found in the river, dead, in Bath. And I thought, it's Dave. It's got to be Dave. I rang up the police, because they said, well, it's all confidential, can't tell you anything, right, all this sort of stuff. Uh, they said, but but we can give you the undertaker's uh, name. And I rang the undertaker and I said, I've got a feeling that this might be a guy called Dave and gave the description and so on. And, uh, and they said, yeah, that's right. I said, has he got any relatives? No, they said, no relatives, nobody. What happens in those cases is the undertakers do a very quiet ceremony on their own. And I said, well, look, I'm a vicar. I knew him, I wanna do the funeral if that's okay. And um, they said, yeah, that, that'll be fine. And so I then rung up every vicar in Bath. <laughs> and I said, Dave the Tramp, it came to you for a sandwich. Do you want to come to the funeral? And, you know, we got to the crematorium and it was packed. Packed. Jeremy Wordsworth was there. Uh, you know, all, all, the, all the vicars of, of that time, they all turned up. I said, right. What we're going to do is we are going to pray, but I want you to share your stories of Dave the Tramp. 
And we had the most fabulous funeral, honestly. All these vicars stood up and said, well, he did this, he did that. Sandra has a story she'll tell you of when he came into our church office with a gun. And he said, they're not going to take my gyro check off of me. And he had this gun and he was waving it in the church office. Um, and Sandra rang me and said, Dave, Dave's here with a gun. I said, well, I'm busy doing a sermon. Yeah. Oh, well. <laughs> but, but I eventually went in and, uh, and we managed to get the gun off of him and we rang the police and the police said, oh, it's only Dave. <laughs> Everybody knew him. And, uh, and it actually turned out to be an air gun, but it's still, still dangerous. And, um, but that was Dave. And, and I'd look at this and I think, yeah, this, it's those little things. Treating those with nothing, those that are oppressed by the system. His mind was gone most of the time. He drank methylated spirits and, and, uh, and cider. Uh, and he, he could hardly speak. And yet somehow this is a being. This is our own flesh and blood. And I know all of you do the same and probably take for granted the fact that your gospel is showing itself in these things and the next and then secondly, I saw in Isaiah 46 to replace fear with faith to build hope. Do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have summoned you by name, you are mine. When you pass through the waters, I'll be with you. When you pass through the rivers, they won't sweep over you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. Replacing fear with faith. I've met many, many people who, who are so afraid of life. Some people who um, have huge panic attacks and, and all the time and are so overcome with the fear that it paralyzes their action. And all of us experience that. And yet here we have what God says to affirm us. When you go on a, a retreat, it's another lovely thing that clergy get. We get these wonderful prayer retreats. I used to go on seven-day silent retreats. Can you imagine me being silent. I, it was a struggle. But one of the things, they always started with this verse. And they used to say, what you first need to do is to affirm your faith. So Alan, go back for a day and pray over these verses. But instead of do not fear, put your own name. So it's, Alan, don't fear, for I have redeemed you. Alan, I summoned you by name. Alan, you're mine. And you know, that used to break you in pieces because God came, came to you by his spirit and would affirm you in the love and the joy that he has within you. Let's just say it with your name. Can we do that just quietly? Just put your name in when you can. Alan, do not fear, for I have redeemed you. Alan, I've summoned you by name. Alan, you're mine. When you pass through the waters, I'll be with you, Alan. Alan, when you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. Alan, when you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. So replacing fear by faith, affirming our faith. And the third lesson I learned from these chapters is this. See, I have refined you, though not as silver, I have tested you in the furnace of affliction. And... We do have these times of affliction through bereavement, through problems at work, through problems with neighbours, through all sorts of things. 
that happen. In, in a vicar's case, it's problems with the church, of course, but you know, we, we, we have the furnace of affliction. And, and it really is um, a very difficult thing to cope with. In, in, in the Bible, in the Israelites, in Deuteronomy, when they came out of Egypt, it was called the iron smelting furnace where they had been tested as a nation before they could be removed. They were tested also here in Babylon when they were um, in the furnace of affliction there. And I'd like to go on to Jesus because Jesus, there's this beautiful picture in Revelation. His feet were like burnished bronze when it's been made to glow in a furnace and his voice was like the sound of many waters. And Revelation's a, a beautiful book full of analogies and, and uh, examples of things. And it was the fact that Jesus had feet of bronze. Why, why didn't he have gold feet like the statues in Nebuchadnezzar? You know, why, why did he have bronze feet? That's what I ask. And, and of course, bronze is an alloy. It doesn't, it doesn't exist naturally. It, it's an alloy of copper and tin. And what God is trying to say is that Jesus Christ, the man who is the founder of your faith, had feet that were an alloy. He was man, and yet he was God. He was divine. And he was in the furnace of affliction, as it says, made to glow in the furnace. He walked into the affliction and found his faith in his father through what was happening to him. And so it is with us. If it is so for our master, why is it not so for us to walk in to the affliction and to see it as a place of testing where we can see what God is saying to us? And so often, um, that's exactly what we need to do. And the next slide. Then the fourth thing I wanted to say was that I got from these chapters that the Israelites had to learn to understand God. I love it when people say to me, God said to me very clearly, God's never said anything to me clearly. <laughs> I struggle. <laughs> I struggle to, to find what God is saying to me. And yet it does come as you pray and as you go before him. But this is what Isaiah said, for my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. So often we think we've got it all sewn up, but actually God is so much bigger than ours. And time and time again, um, I've looked and I've seen that God has been leading, even though I haven't even realized it. And the next slide. And this leads me on to uh, Moses, really. And th this is how I work out the understanding of God. Um, do you remember Moses? He led the people of Israel out. He led them into freedom. Uh, God had led him. Um, and yet he says to God, but I still don't know your name. <laughs> what a thing to ask. <laughs> Can I see your glory? And God said to him, when my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft in the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will remove my hand and you will see my back but my face but not, uh, must not be seen. And I thought about it. I thought, what is this? And then I realized that so often we struggle to find God's way 
And yet, when we look back, it's as clear as day that God has been leading us. It's as clear as day. And so, as Moses could not see sometimes what God was leading him to do, but when he looked back, he could see it um, as clearly as anything. I, I met... Um, I met a lady in the fish and chip shop on Odd Down um, about a year ago now. I, I, sh I shouldn't be going to Odd Down, should I? My old parish. <laughs> but the fish and chips are so good. <laughs> but I went in there and there was this lady. It was packed, full of people. And um, she said to me, you're Alan, aren't you? You're the vicar that left St. Phillips. I said, oh, yeah, yes, that's me. <laughs> Fish and chips are great here, aren't they? And she said, no, no. She said, I still remember when you brought that lady over from Uganda. I said, oh, yeah, I remember, 1992. And um, she said, yeah. And, and that lady, she, she put a slide up. In those days, we had slides. She said yeah. she, she put a slide up of her kitchen, and she was sitting on a car tyre, a rubber tyre. And she said, there's my seat. And there's an open fire inside of this house. There's no chimney. All the smoke comes up and goes out the door. Uh, the place is absolutely black with soot. And uh, she said, I, I was so moved by that picture and that lady. She said, I, I've now got grandchildren. I don't want to go to Uganda. I want to meet her. I said, that's easy. I said, we've got a school out there. I said, we've got a guest house. We've got people who can can help you, meet you at the airport, take you to the place. And uh, I gave her my phone number. She hasn't rung back yet. I hope I didn't, <laughs> I hope I didn't scare her. But I, suddenly God comes to you and he says, you thought you were doing hardly anything. But all those little things you've done in the community, as you have here, have a huge impact on people's lives. And the last, and this, remember this is in the fish and chip shop. The last thing she said to me, Crowded with people. She put her fingers up. She said, you know, I was this much away from coming to church. <sighs> I thought, wow. Maybe, maybe church was created within her heart. I don't know. But so many people are moved to tears, moved by the works of grace and love that God works in your lives. But it's understanding God. And I've got to say, after 54 years being a Christian, I, I understand so little. And yet, like being in the cleft in the rock, as I look back, I see the hand of God so clearly. And it's to see that that is indeed what, um, what God does. He shows you, but often only by looking back. Just one quick thing. I, I remember another vagrant in our manor house. We put him up one Christmas. Uh, this is a temporary building we have at the back of the back of the building, and he he lived in in this manor house for um, for a week. And uh, the central heating stopped. It was connected to the church. I'd done it with a plumber, so that's probably why. <laughs> Big rubber pipe, you know. And, uh, and, and he went, and I thought, well, what did he do to this central heating? And I went in, and I fiddled with it, and it wouldn't come on. And he left it for about six months, because we could never work anything out uh, like that. Then I thought, I'll have a look. And I crawled under this manor house, and I was amazed. Because underneath the manor house, some local 
lads, I think, had tried to burn it down while this guy was inside of it. And there was the remains of a huge fire. It's all blackened. And then I looked up. I thought, well, what happened here then? And there's a central heating pipe, rubber. As they lit the fire and run away, the pipe burst and put the fire out. <laughs> and I just said, I nearly cried. I thought it could have killed a man. It would have burnt half the school down and it would have burnt most of the church down as well, probably. But not just that. It was the fact that God had saved this man in the road once again. Understanding God, seeing his work, looking back and realising that he's at work before you even realise it. Let's go on to the last. Oh, it's here. <laughs> Practical faith. Practical faith and action. Rebuilding hope. Replacing fear with faith. Learning the lessons and understanding God. I think that's my last slide. Let's pray. Father, your move on our lives continually amazes us. We thank you for the miracles that we have seen as we've stood in the cleft in the rock and we've seen your glory passing by.